Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, and I'm here today with my co-host Sharon Bessel in this post-referendum episode. Hi, Anna Greta. I have to admit to feeling quite flat, and I have been since the announcement of the referendum result. As we all know now on Saturday the 14th of October, Australians voted on whether or not to alter the constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The response was a resounding no, with the ACT the only jurisdiction in Australia to vote yes. For many of us, this is a devastating result and Anna Greta, some of the guests that we've spoken to this year about the meaning and the importance of the voice, particularly our Indigenous guests, we know will be heartbroken. Over the coming weeks and months and perhaps years, there's going to be much reflection and much dissection about what led to the outcome and some deep thinking about where we go from here. In this episode, we want to begin with some very initial reflections and importantly, to begin to work through where we do now need to go as a nation. So today, we could not think of anybody better to join us in this, I think, difficult conversation as we reflect and look forward. It is wonderful to welcome Professor Janine O'Flynn, who's the Director of the Crawford School here at ANU. Thank you so much for joining us today in this conversation, Janine. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for the invitation. Janine, it it really is good to have you with us today. And and as Anna Greta said, I I feel like this is a conversation we need to have. We've recorded over the last year, 10 episodes that are focused on the voice to parliament, where we've tried to communicate really clearly just how important that decision that we made um, on Saturday the 14th was for the country. And of course, the outcome isn't what we'd hoped based on those many conversations that we'd had and the understanding that we'd built around why it was so important. So Janine, we're, we're so glad to have you here today to, to talk some of this through. And, and can I ask you, what are your immediate thoughts? What are your reactions to the result of the referendum? Thanks, Sharon. And, and thanks to both of you for the invitation to, to reflect on what is, a, I think, a, a very fundamental point in our shared history in this place. And I, like you, Sharon, feel quite flat with with the with the result. I watched it unfolding on the television. I knew that leading up to to the actual day that there was 
a fairly strong chance that it might not get across the line. But I think many many of us who who thought that what was essentially a gift to us from the First Nations people of this country might uh, get across the line. And so my initial reactions on, on the day watching that unfold were, uh, on the one hand, a delight to see the result in the ACT and then to watch the results coming in across Australia was quite deflating, really. I think it was a, a very important moment for us. And I, I reflected, if I might, on the fact that as I get older and I was thinking about <laughs> different different sort of um, questions like this that have been in my lifetime, I voted in the uh, referendum about the Republic. And so one of the things I, I reflected on over the last sort of days in the post-referendum moment is really 20-something years ago we were offered the opportunity in Australia to stand on our own two feet and to become an independent nation and we didn't take that opportunity. And now a few decades later we were given an opportunity to at least reflect on our past and to recognise the first peoples of this land in our constitution and to offer an opportunity to hear from them. And to reject both of those, I think, tells us something about Australia then and and now. Anna Greta, what are you thinking at this time and what do you think these, these decisions tell us about ourselves? I'm... Um... Reflecting on a whole series of things, I, like the two of you, I've been flattened by this and I know um, it actually feels a little bit like some of the climate change experiences we've had in the few last few years where we know that the science tells us what could happen, but then as we live through the experience, it is extraordinary and the emotional side of this and the psychological side of this, I think, is very real. Sharon, we've had some of the most extraordinary conversations with people about The Voice over the last year, and I can't find silver linings to the referendum result. But if there are some, it's actually in those stories, it's in the perspectives, it's in the knowledge that we have heard by listening to Indigenous voices, particularly uh, through the guests that we've had on the podcast and in other places. I'm really deeply reminded that policy and politics are emotional and that it influences how we feel and how we see the world. And at the moment, I'm trying quite hard to try and sit with that emotion, to sit with sadness, to sit with some anger and to acknowledge some trepidation and fear about what the future looks like. And I'm particularly concerned, I think, about our capacity to have difficult discussions and complex conversations across the community. Sharon, what are your thoughts? Well, like you two, I think there's there's a lot that's been going through my mind as I've tried to reflect on this. And I guess in many ways, as Janine said, the, the result wasn't entirely a surprise, but I think for many of us we held on to the hope that perhaps a lot of people were undecided walking into those polling booths and when the moment came, they, they would vote yes, um, but that didn't happen. One of the things, things that really struck me in the lead up to the referendum in particular is that I think there are some really serious gaps in our collective knowledge about both our history and our political institutions. I do think it was difficult for the Yes campaign to make the case that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people 
are entitled to both recognition as First Nations people in the Constitution and a voice to Parliament. The idea that those measures would be divisive and somehow undemocratic were able to take hold. And as I've been thinking about that, I, I think it reflects a lack of knowledge of our history of this country or a, an unpreparedness to really look at that difficult history, to understand what dispossession and genocide have meant, to understand deep and ongoing structural racism. And when we spoke, Hanegreda, to Thomas Mayo, and that's a conversation that, that I will never forget, he said that our country's already divided. And I think the discussions around the referendum reflect that. And the greatest divide may not be around the gap in socioeconomic indicators that we so often talk about when we talk about closing the gap, but it may be a misrecognition of one another and a misunderstanding of our history and the gap that ex exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, I think might not only be about those socioeconomic indicators, as important as they are, but around who holds power and who's able to tell their truth. And I've got to say, I do think one of the most heartbreaking outcomes of the referendum was both that the Uluru Statement, as Janine said, was offered so generously as a gift to the nation from Indigenous people, and it was a gift that was rejected, but also that so many remote, largely Indigenous communities voted yes. When I saw those figures coming in, that really broke my heart. And so I, I think there are also misunderstandings about the nature of our constitution and our political institutions that were able to be exploited during the campaign. And, and I just want to make two quick points here as we kind of think forward and as I reflect on what's happened. First, I think we're in a very bad place if in the reflections and the dissections that inevitably take place, we criticise or condemn political leaders for having a vision to progress social justice. I just don't think we can allow that narrative to emerge. And this has been, the second point is this has been so hard on Indigenous leaders. And, you know, we've had a, the privilege of talking to many over recent months. I'm not sure exactly how we move forward, but as we do do that, non-Indigenous people have to try to carry some of this burden. We have to listen and be deeply respectful, but we have to take on some of this burden. It's too much for Indigenous leaders to continue to try to lead on this. So there is a lot of discussion in the media at the moment around whether our country is divided and you've just touched, Sharon, so well on some of those divides that we see and I spent a little bit of time on the Electoral Commission website looking at poll by poll and it's absolutely fascinating to look through that. In the ACT, every every uh, polling station voted yes, apart from Queanbeyan. And across uh, jurisdictions like the Riverina, we don't see very many, any polling stations that actually voted yes. And so the divides of geography, the divides of education, the divides of understanding and our, our understanding of civics particularly. Janine, a couple of weeks ago, as Sharon mentioned, we spoke with Thomas Mayo in a conversation that both of us will never forget and he pointed out that a yes vote in the referendum would not divide the country but bring us together. He also noted in that discussion that we're already divided and that the divisions are quite deep between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Janine, what are your thoughts on if and or how Australia is divided and how do we start to bridge some of those by understanding the divides that are there? 
I listened to that conversation with Thomas Mayo and it was an extraordinary conversation. So I think it's not just the the two of you that won't forget that, but it was an extraordinary one to, to feel I was eavesdropping in some ways in this very generous and I don't even I can't I don't even know what the right words are, but it it was a conversation that was revealing. It was it was generous. It was humbling to listen to, and and I thought the series that you have done over the year has been extraordinary, and has offered an opportunity to many of us to to just listen and and to learn. In terms of the division, I think both of you have already. It pointed to some of them, and I, I like you, Anna Greta, had a look at the Electoral Commission um, and the Age, and all the other newspapers were presenting that that data. You could go in by polling station and have a look. So I looked at where it was that we'd voted, and where, what what were the polls nearby, like um, polling booths nearby, and so on. I was really struck when I was watching the coverage on uh, on the day about how concentrated those divisions were. Um, and and so just just looking at the geography was really fascinating, and you know there's a there's a very live discussion in the aftermath of of the result around socioeconomic differences and wealth and education and and so on that that may or, or may not be related to that. There's a relation, but we're guessing in some ways. I think what what that is. The other thing. One of my colleagues came and spoke to me on a couple of days after and he's he wasn't born and he didn't grow up in Australia and he said to me, what do you make of this? And I said, there is something in the Australian way that can also be very brutal. And as I was watching that unfold on on Saturday, I thought a lot about that. that there is a brutality that has been in our history and it's not it's not gone and you know sometimes you can look across certain landscapes of australia and you can see the the potential brutality and the beauty of that but there's something that runs through our culture as it is today that has retained some of that some of that relates to colonisation and, and it remains with us whether we know it or not. And, and there is a certain brutality to what happened, you know, the offering of a gift, an overwhelming rejection is something that on a, if, if someone came to you and offered you something like that or you did that, how would you feel? And, and we're seeing that on a scale that's very confronting the other thing that I've thought a lot about after that conversation with my colleague was in some ways there can also be a meanness that's embedded into our institutions and the way that we do policy. We see it across a range of, of policy areas. Sharon would be very, very knowledgeable in some areas of social policy that sometimes there's actually a meanness embedded in that. And one of the things I was talking with my colleague about was this idea that I don't want you to have something that I haven't got. I don't want you to have special treatment that I don't have. And I think that that attitude, I'm not saying that everyone who voted no came with that to writing that on a ballot paper, but there's something in our 
culture and our psyche, I think, which bleeds all through our institutions. And it is about not giving what's considered special treatment to some people. And and for me, I've reflected a lot on that as well over the last couple of days, this, this sort of brutality that sits sometimes at the heart of the way that this country can be and also in some, some ways a, a rejection of this idea of people being treated differently, even if it's in a positive way. And I, I've thought a lot about that over the last few days in even thinking about how to explain a decision like this to, to others um, who, are, who are coming asking to understand it. Janine, I can hear the emotion in your voice when you're talking about that, and I think for many of us, this is such a deeply painful thing because it does feel like a very generous gift has been rejected and that is an awful thing to play out. And, you know, you say at a personal level, you know, how, how is it if someone rejects a gift? If you reach out to someone and they reject you, it is, is so deeply painful and... I think one of the really hard things about this is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders who have supported the voice, who drafted and then offered the Uluru Statement from the Heart as a gift to our nation, have almost made themselves vulnerable in their generosity. And that rejection is all the more deep because of that generosity and, and the kindness with which this conversation has, has been carried out. And I think, Janine, it's, it's really interesting to reflect on that point you make about the kind of the brutality or the, the mean-spiritedness that we sometimes see. And we often think of Australia as a, as a society that's sort of characterised by egalitarian individualism, you know, this idea of everyone being equal or being able to be equal, but also deeply individualistic. And I think we see some of that coming through in that idea of not wanting others to have something that, that we don't. But to me... I think the referendum indicated that we're divided in so many ways. There are so many axes of division. And I do think for some people it may be, whether they voted yes or no, that there was a question in their minds about why one group of Australians was being offered special treatment when they're not. And I think about the people that I do research with who are living in such deep poverty awful situations, always hungry, never secure in their housing, never able to support their children. And I think when we allow in our society people to live in that kind of circumstance, it's then a lot to ask them to be kind as well. <laughs> Although I know many of those people were and many people that I work with were intending to vote yes. But, you know, I'm thinking of a uh, of a 10-year-old girl recently in, in research that we were doing and we had both Indigenous and non-Indigenous children in the room. This girl was non-Indigenous and we invited the children to write a message to someone who makes decisions on behalf of, of children who can make a difference in their lives. And this little girl wrote, Dear Prime Minister Anthony, could you please give children with no opportunity some hope? And I think when we've got a society in that kind of desperation, overlaid with our lack of pre preparedness, our, our lack of understanding of our institutions and our lack of understanding of our history, 
then it makes it really hard for people to see the struggles and the pain of others. So I think we've got a divide and I think it's very deep and growing deeper and this referendum indicates it, but it's not all of it. Humans are social. We are designed to be kind and caring to each other. That's part of how we've survived. I think our politics over the last few decades has deeply undermined our capacity to be caring and empathetic toward each other. We now see these extraordinary divides across geography, across our economics and through our levels of education, but also on our understanding of the benefit of kindness and compassion. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be back in just one moment to continue this discussion. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here reflecting on the results of Australia's vote in the referendum on the First Nations Voice to Parliament. And Anna Greta and I are delighted to be joined today by the Director of the Crawford School, Janine O'Flynn, as we, as we think about what that outcome means for our country. I'd be really interested to hear from each of you on what you think the outcome of the referendum will mean in your area of expertise. Janine, your research focuses on, on public management and issues of values and collaboration within government. And of course, we're in the midst of a, a public sector reform process. What does the public sector now need to do? What role does the public sector now need to play for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? And in particular, what do we need to do around the issue of reconciliation broadly? That's a very big question, I know, but hearing some of your early reflections would be fantastic. Thanks, Sharon. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting time in, in terms of what's happening in the public sector at the moment. And as you said, I've spent a long time looking at issues around collaboration and, and values and, and reform and, and what's I think particularly interesting at the moment in in the Australian context is in in this what's referred to as a once in a generation attempt at transformative change, a a recognition around First Peoples knowledge and contributions has been placed at the centre of that in in terms of thinking about public sector reform, it hasn't got quite the attention that things like digital transformation and and so on have it at this stage, but it's certainly in that big manifesto. And and to me there's a there's a couple of ways to to really think about what what does that mean um, for going forward in the Australian public sector, which in, in many 
many cases over over time has been progressive and leading in some some areas of of sort of social issues that that we care deeply about so one area that i think is really there's a lot of potential for how can the public service change but also how it can act as as a leader across across the nation is looking at some of the um, the sort of values and and ideas that are embedded in many First Nations cultures that can influence the way that public sector does what it does. Um, a very wonderful former colleague of mine, Aurora Milroy from Western Australia, an extraordinary young Indigenous woman, did some work some years ago looking at how could we how could we change the Australian public service if we embedded Indigenous knowledge systems and ways of of working into them. And in fact, what she comes to in some of her work is the idea that many of the hot topics that, that we talk about in public management at the moment are very old ideas. Things like stewardship, which is, you know, the hottest new thing in terms of the Australian public service, and it will be embedded as one of the new values in the Australian public service, is of course right at the centre of caring for country and how we think about sort of intergenerational learning and knowledge transfer in Indigenous nations across across this country. Ideas around human-centred design, as we think of them, uh, um, have roots and have been practised for millennia in many Indigenous cultures. So part of her argument is these are not new ideas at all, but if we would engage in in sort of relationships with um, Indigenous knowledge and expertise that we could embed those into the Australian public service. The other area I think in terms of reconciliation is, uh, which you which you asked about, Sharon, is really how how does a system like the Australian public service reckon with its own past in what have been policy decisions and implementation models, if we use the technical terms, that have had profound impact on Indigenous communities, which have been uh, very painful and, and traumatic. And so there has to be a process not just of truth-telling across the Australian population but also within our institutions. And I think there's some very painful work there that needs to be done within the public service so it can move forward in a way where it can support Indigenous staff but also it can start to reset that relationship. One of the things I worry a lot about after the outcome this week is that this is just another example of where government, in whatever form we want to think about that, whether it's elected officials or the public service or whatever, engages with Indigenous communities, in this case with leaders across the nation and communities, and asks them to join them in in some change but doesn't deliver on its side. And I think that's that's going to be a very big thing to deal with both in um, government in terms of elected officials but also in our public service. How do we think about that relationship going forward? Anna Greta, I know that you will be thinking about the implications, the impacts um, around health and, and also around the health and climate change intersection. What, what are your thoughts on how this result will impact on, on those issues? I think some of Janine's reflections about the role and responsibility of government and public service actually sit very importantly across the health perspective as well. And I'm struck that the conversation we had earlier around division is really important. 
And it strikes me particularly that we're not just divided by our economics and by our geography, but we've been deeply divided by our sources of information. And I've been an amateur, you know, US politics watcher for decades. And it terrifies me that we can't share knowledge across our community in a way that brings people together to discuss and debate interesting problems, problems where perspectives, where there's no one truth and problems where different perspectives count so deeply, that we've really undermined that process. And that is probably the most horrifying part. It impacts on health. It impacts on how we trust each other when we talk to each other. And it impacts on climate change, on how we trust each other and how we talk to each other, how we how we bring together communities with different perspectives, individual with different thoughts and people with different needs to share in a common future. Our capacity to listen to First Nations voices, I hope it grows through this, but I know it will have been shaken So I think one of the responsibilities we all hold, both in education and in our other fields, is ensuring that we maintain that relationship, that we've just begun, I think, in the last few years to deeply understand the benefits of a First Nations perspective into the complex problems that we face, and there's so much more to be learned. So not letting this process disrupt that, but allowing um, that to grow after this, I think, is really, really important. Sharon, what does this mean for children? What does it mean particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, but what does it mean for all children across Australia and for child poverty more broadly? Anna Greta, I think so many of the statistics that we see tell us that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are are more likely to live in poverty, particularly income poverty. As I said earlier, we, we know from all the closing the gap data that we've we've made progress, but we still have a very, very long way to go. But I really worry, and, and I would always defer to Indigenous leaders on issues relating to First Nations children, but, but I do really worry that for children, it may be the denial of recognition that impacts most deeply um, and that creates a form of... It's a sense of poverty that has little to do with income but has everything to do with how you are recognised and positioned within your own country. So I think there are some some really important and deep issues there that we need to, to think about and to think how we ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children don't feel that this is a rejection of them Because one of the things that we learn in our research is that children are deeply aware of the debates and the discussions that are happening around them. They are not protected from them. Um, And so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children will have heard all the things that have been debated and will have heard some of the horrendous comments um, that have been made about them and their communities. I am really alarmed at some of the comments that the Leader of the Opposition made in the days immediately after the referendum where he went immediately to issues of the sexual abuse of children, calling for an inquiry into um, the sexual abuse of Indigenous children in Indigenous communities. I think that's incredibly damaging. I would encourage Mr Dutton or anyone who wants to know about these issues to listen to the conversation we had with Catherine Little and perhaps also to look at the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, which shows us 
that there are a very high percentage of children across Australia, regardless of race, regardless of background, who are subjected to sexual abuse. So to come out immediately with those kinds of comments, I think is appalling and I think it's damaging and it's not based in evidence. So that kind of political narrative, I think, is really damaging for children. Um, as we go forward, I think schools are going to have to pick up some of this for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who are dealing with the aftermath. And that's difficult because we know that schools are already so overloaded. But for schools and across the country, we need to be thinking about trauma-informed responses and how we aim to wrap Indigenous children in love and care so that they are not impacted as deleteriously as, as they may be by the, the outcome of, of this referendum. Like Janine, I think, you know, there's so much we can learn from Indigenous communities about connecting children to community and to country, and now is the time for us to value and to respect that and to listen to Indigenous people about the ways in which they want us to support their children going forward. And, and I just sort of end these comments by saying I, I was so deeply moved by hearing Catherine Little speak um, on the night of the referendum and she was on an ABC television panel and it felt like she was speaking directly to Mob when she, she said, we'll be okay, we've got you. you know, we have to respect the extent to which Indigenous communities are able to support their children and not make outrageous comments about a lack of care or a lack of protection because care and protection are deep within Indigenous communities. Now, I know that I'm a visitor today, a guest, but I wouldn't mind if you'd give me the, the honour to ask you two a question <laughs> and I get this chance very often with you. And we've talked a lot about the outcomes of the referendum and what it means for Australia, but I'm also really interested in what you think are some of the international ramifications Sharon, you've worked in the region and internationally over many years on human rights issues. What do you think the implications are likely to be for Australia's international reputation? Yeah, Janine, we, um, we had a little bit of this conversation with Frank Bongiorno a, a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, Frank's view was it, it's unlikely to have very many international ramifications for us at all. Um, I think it depends who's looking and who's judging. I think there will be parts of the international community where really very little attention is paid, very little thought is given to this. Um, but I think amongst those who watch on issues of human rights, who watch on issues of social justice, there will be commentary and there will be regret and, and perhaps judgment. And I think amongst those groups, their international reputation will be damaged. Australia actually has a really proud history of human rights. You know, we were right there, led by um, by H.V. Everett in the early days of the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the mid-1940s, you know, saying human rights matter and they matter to all of us. But in recent years, our, our record on human rights is really tarnished. We have a terrible reputation, and rightly so, internationally on our treatment of asylum seekers. Um, but of course... Our policies, which are, are well described as punitive and cruel, have been transferred. They've been taken up with enthusiasm by other countries, like the United Kingdom. So again, it depends who's watching and, and who's judging. 
But I, as I said, I think for, for anyone who is engaged in issues of human rights and Indigenous rights particularly, we'll be judged harshly on this and we probably should be. There is, it is hard from a human rights or a social justice perspective to in any way be able to justify the outcome of the referendum, um, even though in our conversations within the country, you know, we, we know that there may be reasons for that. I think, you know, in terms of our, our external face, almost impossible to justify. And it's a missed opportunity. It was an extraordinary opportunity, I think, for Australia to show global leadership in this complex territory of acknowledging and reconciling a process of colonisation. Uh, and it's a process of colonisation uh, which is not just in Australia but around the world and there are other countries where uh, the tensions are similar we had a remarkable opportunity to lead in this, to imagine a future uh, in which both coloniser and those who've been colonised can come to a collaborative framework and a way to build a best future. And unfortunately, we closed that door. I think the door is still there, but I, I really do wish that we'd taken that opportunity when it was presented. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I sort of was thinking about today and I've been like like many people, I'm sure, listening to, to quite a bit of commentary and, and so on on this. And I, I heard an exchange today listening um, on the radio which referred to, which was, was looking at this issue actually about what would it mean for our international reputation. And a former diplomat said something along the lines of people outside of Australia might not get into the detailed nuance of constitutional reform and questions and, and so on. But he made the case that what it will be seen as internationally is a rejection of the aspiration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. And I thought that was a, a really interesting and, and devastating way to describe it, actually, that pe people outside won't know our system, they won't understand it, but the headline interpretation of that will be by those who are looking um, will be that. And Sharon, you mentioned the the discussion with Professor Frank Bongiorno, and I really enjoyed listening uh, to that discussion because it did give us a lot of really interesting historical sort of stuff to to work with, and it it took us through. And I learned a lot listening to his discussion, actually, of constitutional change over time, with some surprises and shocks along along the way, including his comment that the three of the eight. Changes all happened in one go, which I had no idea of. So I, I will thank him when I see him for that. But he also said we shouldn't overread the result and that we can still shape how we move forward from here. So I'd love to hear from each of you, again, taking the privilege as a guest <laughs> to ask questions about what you'd like to see happen, but in the immediate future, um, in the next few weeks, but also over the years to come. How do, how do we grapple with this? I think this is one of the most difficult moments that I can remember and I, I enjoy politics, I enjoy watching the cut and thrust and the debates that take place but I, I really find uh, that this one is a hard one and I, I said at the beginning that I know I need to take some time to sit in the combination of sadness and anger and fear and work out where we go. I'm thinking a little bit though about that period where I've been working in climate change with a government where we couldn't use the words climate change. 
and the opportunities that present themselves through that sort of adversity in the policy framework space um, are remarkable, of reminding us of the benefits of working with each other, with communities, in groups, in geography, in places where we can solve problems together and we can exhibit real care for both people and place. And so I think that's some of what we might need to be thinking about a bit more in the months, the years ahead. But I also think this conversation can help us to leap forward in the discussion. You can imagine if we answer some of the questions that we raised through our conversation today, that that would be a remarkable forward step for Australia. And so these are some of the opportunities that are presented. I'm a little bit more hesitant to to emphasise again the negativity because I think there are significant pitfalls in where we find ourselves at the moment. Sharon, what are your thoughts? Look, I think as we we do move forward and as we we try to work through what has happened and, and why it has happened, we do also need to keep in mind that actually a very large number of Australians, even though the result was no overall for the population and no in, in every jurisdiction except the ACT, there still were a very large number of Australians who voted yes. And so in all of this, I think we need to keep that in mind. You know, we do have clearly very, very strong support across the country, deeper in some parts of the country than others, but across the country for recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and indeed for a voice to Parliament. So I think we do need to keep that in mind. I think we need to to listen. Anna Greta, you and I talk a lot about listening. I think we need to listen to Indigenous leaders and Indigenous communities about how we move forward. I think we do, as the referendum has shown us as well, need to recognise that there is division within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and amongst leaders. And of course, each of us needs to make our own choice about where we put our support when those divisions emerge. And I would always argue that we put our support on the side of social justice and and human rights. And we need to think about how we can build solidarity. And I think too, that we need to, to think about what this means for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I think one of the most tragic outcomes of the referendum would be if we allowed that statement to just fade into history. Because I do think its beauty and its power can give us a pathway forward even now. That's hard because the voice is so central to the statement, but there is more to it. The idea of Makarata of coming together after a struggle gives us something so powerful. I think the question is whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will be prepared to once again offer us that gift. But if they do, we must embrace it. Janine, I think we probably should begin to to draw this conversation to a close. But as we do, I think both Anna Greta and I would would love to, to give you the last word and to ask you what immediate and longer-term steps would you like to see us take as a nation as we move forward? Well, thank you, and and thank you again for inviting me into this discussion today. And I thought, Sharon, you you raised some really critical points in your reflections there about listening. And it's not just about listening with our ears, but it is about listening with an open heart. And sometimes that can be very painful 
And I think we have to have those conversations. We we cannot ask our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander friends and colleagues to do all of that work alone. And we, we have to, I think, as you said, Sharon, walk side by side in some path towards social justice. Like you, I despair of the idea that people will think this is the end of the Uluru Statement from the heart, truth, treaty and voice together, perhaps in a different sequence than we were expecting. But to me, I think we have to join on that path together. And if I can just in my my final sentence say I had a, a wonderful discussion with our colleague Paul Girawa-House uh, here at the Crawford School a month or so ago and he presented me with a, a beautiful um, picture made up of, of words from this local community and the first one is one that stuck with me since that discussion, Yindiyamara, which means respect, polite, go slow, be kind and take responsibility. And that stuck with me all the way through these discussions and I think into the future. Janine, that is a superb place to leave this conversation, really deep reflecting on what we can learn by listening. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. And we really do love hearing from our listeners and we would particularly love to hear you on these issues. So do reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or you can find us on our new email address, which is policyforumpod at anu.edu. The episodes that we've produced on The Voice to Parliament this year are some of the most powerful conversations that we've had, and they remain incredibly important to understanding our past and our present and to imagining what our future could be. So if you haven't listened to them, please do. Our thanks as always to Hannah Scott for production and Darcy Brumpton and Alex Jackson for background research. We will leave you now, and from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we will see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.